right, we're in Hebrews 10. Prayerfully, we'll finish it. And then we get to the one everybody knows, Hebrews 11. So, prayerfully, we'll get through Hebrews 10. Again, uh, today I'm going to talk about assurance. If you have been here through this study of Hebrews, I have come to the conclusion, Dave's personal opinion, that Hebrews is the most solid argument for assurance of your salvation. I don't think there's any other book I've ever studied in my life that is more repetitive on the issue of assurance of your salvation. And so today is no different. In fact, it's going to be even harder, a harder nail here into that coffin. And uh, so that's what we're facing. Jesus is our theme. Jesus is this. Jesus is this. Jesus is this. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing out. He's our high priest. He's higher than Moses. He's above the angels. Jesus is. Jesus is. Well, today, Jesus is our assurance, absolute, complete and total assurance. So what do we do with the idea that you can lose your salvation? People say, well, what if I'm not saved? You know, I'm, I had a guy with me that I fully convinced that if God had loved this person, chosen this person, wrapped this person in his arms, this person couldn't lose his salvation. And the person said, yeah, but how do I know that he did that? You know, I mean, it's like no matter how far you back up, this person can take one step farther back, you know. And so and I know this person to be safe without a doubt. No question. So what do we do? I mean, how do you deal with that feeling? What here's a great analogy. And uh, our church is such a mixed bag of people. It's really pretty cool to see how differently people look at this. But what about the person that says I'm saved, but he's a drug addict? In your mind, you're immediately saying, nope, can't be. Why not? You look at porn. You better than he is. Are you saved? You know, uh, well, if he's if if she's a if she's a a Christian, she shouldn't be doing that. No kidding. (laughs) But does that make her unsaved? You know. What about. What about. Violent people. I'm not talking about beating your spouse. I'm just talking about just violent, just angry people. Is that any less vile to God? No. You know? So we have to be careful that we don't look at somebody's behavior and say, oh, they're not saved. We don't see any fruit. Yes. And we probably should challenge them with, I don't see any fruit in your life, so I might question your salvation. But in your heart, that should only be because you want them to look into it themselves. But other than that, we can't jump to that conclusion. We've got to be careful. Listen, this is an awesome little story. I think Robbie shared this a while back. I can't remember, but, but I've had it for a while because I like Ironside. But this is an H.A. Ironside story. He said, an elderly man said, to Ironside, I will not go on unless I, unless I know I'm saved or else know it's hopeless to seek to be sure of it. I want a definite witness, something I can't be mistaken about. I just want to know, you know. Ironside replied, okay, suppose you had a vision of an angel who told you your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough to rest on? What if an angel appeared to you and said, listen, you're forgiven? Would that be would that satisfy? And he said, yeah, I think that would just about do it. And Ironside said, 
But suppose on your deathbed, Satan came and said, I was that angel. Wow. That'd mess you up, won't it? <laughs> he says, what would you say? The man was speechless. Ironside then told him that God has given us something more dependable than the voice of an angel. He has given his son who died for our sins and has testified in his own word that if we trust him, all our sins are gone. Ironside read 1 John 5:13 said, you may know that you have eternal life, which is a great verse. Then he said, is that not enough to rest on? It's a good point that you may know you have eternal life. If the Bible tells you, if John, who wrote a chunk of the New Testament, okay, I know we give Paul tons of credit. John wrote a lot of it. If John said, he actually said it in a couple of his writings, that you may know that you have eternal life. How can there be any way to say, well, maybe I do. I'm not sure. As long as I don't mess up, I, as long as I have blah, 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 blah. That can't be possible. There has to be an uh, that I know. And what H.A. Ironside would say is he can't do much better than he wrote it down. Came himself, bled, sealed it in his own blood, and then wrote it down. So anyway, let's dig into it. Go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 19. And again, if you, if, if you haven't been part of all this, you know, we've been stacking and stacking and stacking for weeks. So you can go back and listen to the podcast. It's Dave. You look up David Wiley in iTunes or go to sermon.net and search David Wiley or slash David Wiley and you'll get it. Okay. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers. So who's he talking to in this moment? Christians, believers, at least. We know for a fact, we talked about this before, he's addressing believing Jewish people, Hebrews, believing Hebrews. Why? What are they trying to do? What are these believing Hebrews or unbelieving Hebrews? There's a mixed bag that he's talking to. What are they trying to do? Why is he writing the book? Yeah, they're trying to keep the temple worship and all the Judaic sacraments and all these things. They're trying to go back to temple worship. And uh, there are people among them that are not saved but are playing the game. And he's trying to keep those people from leading everybody back into all this. Modern day translation, works-based salvation. Which, funny enough, most of the denominations, let's call them that, um, some I wouldn't even call Christian, but those that teach that a works-based salvation are the same ones that teach you can lose it, which is our, no, no surprise. So therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, underline it, circle it, square it, star it, highlight it, since we, what does it say? Have confidence. Not since we need to get confidence. Since we have confidence to do what? To enter the holy places. By the blood of Jesus. Now, we talked about this a lot. You're talking about the temple. You're talking about the place where nobody goes. Okay? He's saying, not only can we go there, but we have confidence to go there by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. Underline the word living. How do you know you can have confidence that you can go? Because the person by whom you are going is alive. Alive. Always there. To open the door, so to speak. 
always there to stand beside you. How do you know you can always stand before God? Because if you belong to his son by the blood of his son, you can. he is always there. That's why Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. I am the truth. And I am the what? Life. John 14, 6. I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. Hebrews here says that he is the living way. That he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Look what he's p- painting a picture here. You remember the Holy of Holies? We talked about it where you can't go behind the veil. And he says, you know, to go behind the veil was, was death. It says his flesh, look at this, his flesh symbolizes the curtain. His blood symbolizes the sacrifice that the priest would have carried back. And you could say that his heart symbolizes that mercy seat. That's amazing. That whole Holy of Holies was a picture of Jesus. The whole thing. All the way through. Remember Hebrews 9, 9? It's a symbol or a parabola, a parable. Everything they were doing was acting out something that should have made clear who Jesus was. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great living priest... Over the house of God. Notice there it says the house of God, which means all of us, not just Jews. However, Israel is the audience he's speaking to. But he just right here plugs in. This is over the house of God. This high priest is over all of the house of God. And he says, let us draw near. Now, flip over to Exodus 19 and let's put into perspective the words that just came out of his mouth. With confidence... Let us draw near to God. You're going to understand. See, this is, you know, this is why I like the Old Testament, because it puts me back into perspective, because I, I really feel like in a lot of ways the church has, has just grown so apathetic to so many things. Some like prayer and all these things have just become even no idea how dramatic some of these things were. To be said, I know I, I, I appreciate that I'm saying that standing here in a T-shirt and blue jeans and tennis shoes. But but there, there's a there, there, what I'm getting at is it's not a matter of, oh, super holiness ties and slacks and bow on your face. And, and, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about respecting what has occurred so that when you do go to pray or as Robbie talked about last week, which I love and completely agree with that. You go climb in your father's lap and call him Abba, Daddy, Father. When you go do that, that what it took to make that possible is what I'm talking about. Look at Exodus 19. Look at this, verse 10. Keep in mind, draw near with confidence, okay? This is what the reader, the readers of this letter, the Hebrews letter, is, is hearing in their mind when he says draw near. Exodus 19:10. The Lord said to Moses, this is when they got to Mount Sinai. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. In other words, clean up, get spotless as you can get and be ready for what? Tell me how they missed this. Watch this. Be ready for the what? The third day. Underline it. Be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will what? What does it say? Come down. 
How are they missing this? I'm telling you, he played it all out over and over and over and over and over. Okay, be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. Look at this in sight of all the people. That's exactly what Jesus did. Do you realize the same people group? Jesus walked the entire nation for three years. The same people group. On the third day, in sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people around the mountain, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. That's interesting that he calls the mountain a him here. But he shall be stoned or shot. Now, they didn't have guns, obviously, so we're talking about archers or slings. Whether beast or man, even an animal, kill. If you're if you're. Cattle wanders over to the mountain. You've got to kill it. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then, then, and then only, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down because he's on the mountain. How would you like to be the one standing on that mountain when he's saying all that about it? So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for what? The third day, that's a great prophetic statement that Moses didn't even know he was saying. Be ready for the third day. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go read any of the Gospels. Jesus rose on the third day. We're fixing to celebrate Easter. We're fixing to celebrate Easter. That's what. Be ready for the third day. Here it is in the Old Testament. So 16, verse 16. On the what? On the what? Morning of the third day. Man, it's Easter Sunday all day long right here. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. That is, un. I mean, can you wrap your brain around that imagery? The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, violently shaking. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. You picture this now. These trumpets are blasting. A mountain is literally engulfed in fire and smoke. And then God speaks, and it's so loud, it's like thunder shaking the ground. The mountain's already shaking. Not to mention they have barriers around it, because if you touch it, you're dead. Verse 20, then God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Look at that. He came down to the top of the mountain. Now, he's already there in smoke and fire. So who is it on top of the mountain? Full side note. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who do come near, see here, even then the priests were invited to come near. Not all the way in, but near. That's why the priests did the business of the temple. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Consecrate means clean. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down. And come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Again, look at the language. God is saying, don't let them come up to the Lord unless he 
breaks out against them. We either have a schizophrenic God or we have three in one, which we do. I believe Moses is talking to, uh, we'll call him Jesus even here. That's what I think. So Moses went down and told the people. Then Moses gets the Ten Commandments. Skip over to verse chapter 20. Let's skip over to verse 18. Moses gets the Ten Commandments. Watch how this ends. Verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, yeah, to say the least, and trembled. And they stood, look, far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. By the way, if you ever wonder why God doesn't speak to you, you might read this a few times and be thankful. Mike, just read it a couple times and be thankful. They heard his voice and they were terrified and said, please make it stop. Verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, you remember... When we talked about the high priest and all of the, you go look at the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, and all that the priest had to go through. We talked about it last week, cleaning himself and purifying himself. And then they still tied a rope around him before he walked in the Holy of Holies, just hoping that he didn't have some piece of sin on him before God. And that one day a year that he was invited. Man, draw near. That's a completely foreign concept. And this author of Hebrews is saying, with great confidence, draw near. Uh, what? Totally foreign concept. Look at, look, go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Back in verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You can draw near because of him. In, look, in full assurance. That's our word. Full, complete, total assurance of faith. Underline faith there. We'll come back in a second. Full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Can we sprinkle? Listen, can we sprinkle our hearts? I can't. Can you? I mean, is that a hard question? I don't know. I can't get in there. I can't do it. I mean, how, what does that even mean? You know, I'm not trying to beat up on Catholics, but they do the sprinkling thing and all this stuff. Regardless of that, even if we just take this and we say, okay, I understand what he's saying. He's saying, you know, ceremonially clean your heart. Okay, do it that way. Ceremonially clean your heart. You can't do that. An evil conscience. Can you cleanse your conscience from evil? No. It can't be done. Try. Try. I promise you, it cannot be done. So how in the world are we supposed to do this? How is this supposed to happen? How can we come with full assurance of faith if we can't do these things? Because the high priest has and he is living. Look at verse 23. Because of that, let us, let us command. Verse 24 says it again. Let us Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Underline the word hope. Without wavering. Let's hold fast 
the confident the confession of our hope. That doesn't we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're saying you made a confession of your hope of the hope that you have in God. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. That also tells you that there's going to be struggles. That also tells you there's going to be times where you really don't feel like you're saved or you really don't feel like God's got your back or you really don't feel like things that shouldn't be like this, that this is the way it is. Or I'll tell you from my point of view, I shouldn't be addicted to this flipping drug if I'm saved. And he's saying, hold on to the confession. Hold on to the confession without wavering. Look at this. How do you do it? How do you hold on to that confession of your hope? It says it right there. For. You could strike out the word for and put because. Because what? He who promised is what? Faithful. Hello? Thing on. He who promised is faithful. It's not. Listen to me. It's not because you are able. You never were able. It's because he is able. You've got to get that straight in your mind, guys. You have got to get that straight in your mind. Salvation is beyond you. It is not possible. You can't sprinkle your heart. You can't cleanse your conscience. You can't go before the God I just read about in Exodus. You cannot do it. But you have a great high priest who did, Jesus. And that same Jesus is still alive and still standing there today. And your hope is in him and because of that with full assurance you can come stand before that god with a clear conscience now i'm saying you don't have sin and you don't struggle but i'm saying a con a, an, an evil conscience that i enjoy evil you can be cleansed of that and you can come stand before him not because you are able but because he's able and what he's saying is that high priest is faithfully doing his job Go to Jude. I want to show you something mind-blowing. Hold your finger there because we'll come back to Hebrews. Go to Jude. I heard Piper preach this once, and I'm going to be fair and give him credit because it was unbelievable. Jude is only one chapter, so we're going to look at verse 1. And this is the brother of Jesus, likely. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in, the, in God the Father, and what? How does that end? And what? Kept for Jesus Christ. Who is keeping them? Us. You understand what keeping means? Being kept for Jesus. By who? Skip down. Look at verse 24. Watch this. The close, that's the opening. Look at the closing. Now to who? Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to him who is able to present you blameless. You can't can't be blameless, guys. Can't be never going to happen. But he is able to keep you and he is able to present you blameless before the look at that presence of his glory with great joy. He's the one. That is able to keep you. In fact, he is keeping you. That's what verse 1 says. He is able to keep you and he is keeping you. You are kept. There's nothing in here about what we do, our responsibility. None of that's in there. Now, here's the cool part about doxology. The way your little thing ends. Doxologies always have 
uh, a statement, a profound statement, and then a reason for that profound statement. So look at it. Here's the profound statement. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, how is that? How is he able? Verse 25, to the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look, be this, this Jesus that we're talking about, this Jesus, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Look, before all time, now, and forevermore. Translation, living. This Jesus is living. And if you are in him, you are kept from before time, now, and forevermore. You are not able to do that, but he is. That's mind-blowing. Go back to Hebrews 10, verse 24. He says, let us, continuing on, he says, let us consider. That word consider in Greek means to direct your whole mind's attention to. It means to completely immerse yourself in it. Completely soak yourself in this. Let us completely immerse ourselves in how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, underline love. If you look back in verse 21, you underline faith. If you look in verse 23, you underline hope. And if you look in verse 24, you underline love. It's like 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love. But look what he says we're supposed to immerse ourselves in. Being the best Christians that we can be. That's what it says. Does he say, devote your whole mind into Bible study, personal quiet time? No. Does he say, devote your whole mind into prayer? No. He says, immerse yourself into others. Not just others, but how you can help them love more and do Good works. Well, who are the others that he's talking about? Look, verse 25, not neglecting. The word neglecting means abandoning to meet together as some have a habit. Now, remember, they're being persecuted. So some are ditching the church. He's telling them, do not ditch the church. Now, here's uh, people bring this passage up to preach. You need to come to church all the time. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is what it's saying. There's no twist. And I'm going to take it even deeper and say what he's saying is you are being ripped apart by lions, stuck on poles and lit on fire, but don't quit going to church. Now, what excuse do you have? Well, I can watch it on TV at home. I don't need church. Oh, I'm sure he'd understand. I'm sure they'd understand. Uh, It must be in there somewhere. I ain't trying to hate, but I'm just saying. For a long time, I argued... With this verse, and, 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 and even when I was coming to church, I just argued with it because I was like, you know, meeting together could be anything. That could be a small group in a home, and it could be, but that's not what he's talking about. He is talking about you as a body coming together to immerse yourself into encouraging each other to love and encouraging each other to serve. That's why all those youth are in that other room over there. Would there be 110 youth in that other room that just spent yesterday doing uh, work within the culture of our own community if this church was not here? No. Well, they going to be a little small group of 100 kids in somebody's home? It's not going to happen. What if all 100 of them and their parents watch TV every week? Is that going to happen? No. He says, don't give up on meeting. 
don't abandon it. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, raise your hand if that word day is capitalized in your translation. That's pretty interesting. That kind of caught me off guard. Not all translations are, and I was kind of curious why. And then when I started digging into it, it's a little bit freaky. What day do you think he's referring to? The coming of Christ. Yeah, and in essence, he is. He's referring to the coming of Christ. And you can go, I don't have time to go into it all now, but you can go to Second Thessalonians 2, and you can read about the day drawing near. And that's talking about the return of Christ and when he's going to come and all these things. I'm not going into eschatology right now, but, but that kind of talk. But it's even more specific than that. Hold your finger there and go over to first. Just hold your finger because you're coming right back. We'll go to First Corinthians 3 real quick. I'm going to show you something. The only other place that I found, in, at least in the ESV and in the, uh, a couple of other translations that capitalize it, is here. And when I went back and looked at the context of it in Greek, it is, repl- it is recognizing this. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's works will become manifest for the day, capitalized, will disclose it. Remember, the guy in Hebrews was talking about works, stirring each other up to good works, even as that day comes. Paul is saying there's coming a day where your good works are going to be exposed. Watch what he says. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We talked about this last week. You can go back and look at it. He's talking about believers because that's who he's been talking to. And he's saying, hey, your works are going to be judged one day. So where am I? What you did with the gift that you've been given is going to be judged one day. Are you going to be lost? No. It says you're going to be saved. You're saved. That's done. Remember, we just talked about it. You are kept from before the foundation of the world. You're kept now and you are kept for eternity because your priest is alive. All right. But he's saying there's a day coming when what you've done with what you have is going to be judged. And literally that word day is in reference to a court date. It's in reference to a court date. That's kind of freaky. You know, people always say, oh, we don't need to get caught up in end times. You know, man, that's a, it was a distraction, blah, 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 blah. I know. I understand that. Except for the fact that most of the New Testament, every single apostle referred to its coming. Jesus discussed his coming. Almost every Old Testament prophet discussed his coming. It's been discussed throughout Scripture. Matter of fact, a little known fact. During the Babylonian exile, when Israel was exiled to Babylon, and they went to Babylon, and their own scriptures said there's coming a Messiah, the fair, or the rabbis of the time said, hey, you know what, let's not get caught up in all that. We don't know when that is. That's way off. We don't need to fool with that. And they started writing their commentaries, and they started writing out the Talmuds, Babylonian Talmuds, and all these commentaries on scriptures. They said, quit focusing on that. That's, that's peripheral. We need to focus on the task at hand. We don't need to worry about that. And they were so good at doing that that guess what? When he showed up, they missed him. They weren't even looking for him. 
The ones that were looking for him were the ones that were still in that word, constantly watching for him to come, like a woman in a temple, in the temple, who saw a baby and knew it was him. So don't think that it's wrong to look. Now Acts chapter two talks about when when Jesus arose into the, into the heavens and the the apostles are standing there looking up at the sky watching, and it says an angel appeared and said, "We got to stand around here for it." He told you what to do. Go do it. Now, that's true. We don't need to stand out here and stargaze and do nothing. But there's a beauty in looking forward to that day. So the question is, what's that day going to look like for you? Now, Paul said we should encourage each other with these words. That's what First Thessalonians 4 says. Paul says, encourage each other with the words that this day is coming. In Paul's mind, he was expecting a reward. In Paul's mind, and, and, and listen, I'm not talking about millions of dollars. It ain't that kind of reward. For me, and I'm not trying to be holy, holy here. It's just a fact. I really come to a place where for me, I just want to hear get a hug and say, man, you, you killed it. You did all, well, killed it may not be the right word, but <laughs> you, did, you, did, you did awesome. You know, that's what I want. That's, a, that's good enough for me, man. I mean it. That's good enough for me. But I want that reward. Of my father being proud. That's what I want. I don't want to just get in the house. I want my dad to welcome me at the door and be proud. And I'm killing myself to that end. And I think that's what Paul did. And so Paul was looking forward to it. To him, Paul knew he was waiting at the door. You know what I mean? And, and, and so we all going to face that door. And that's the question I'm putting out to you is what's it going to look like? So back in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll finish up here fairly quick if I can. But understand that where we're fixing to go now is a change in pace. He's fixing to change his direction a little bit. Remember, before we go on, remember the audience. All right, He's not discussing losing your salvation. If you, if you Go back and listen to the podcast when I talked about is Jesus, our, our Jesus is our only hope. And that was from Hebrews 6. Go back and listen to that if you want some more on it. But he's not talking about that. Keep that in mind. What we've just read is a great, beautiful, incredible picture of salvation. And now what he's going to do is he's going to contrast that against people who literally hear, see, and experience it, and then walk away. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, he's being rhetorical when he says we. If we go on sinning deliberately... Which means, deliberately means free of conscience and habitual. means there's nothing telling me it's wrong. I live by this. Porn stars are probably a good example. I'm not saying all of them, but in general. They're making millions of dollars and they love what they do. There's no guilt. You can't even, they don't even comprehend. You're just a negative preacher if you come at them with that. There's no comprehension. No guilt. No anything. All right. That's what he says. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. See, people say, why why wait? They receive the knowledge of the truth. They must be saved. No. They just received the knowledge of the truth. Give me one great example of somebody that this happened with. That received the knowledge of the truth but went right on sinning. There's an incredible example. In your Bible. Judas. Yeah. How about Judas? You don't get better than walking side by side with Jesus every step he takes for three years while he's on the earth. And yet he was the one that literally signed the warrant that put him on the cross. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
Now, what he's doing is he's referencing, you can just make a note, but he's referencing Numbers 15, Exodus 20, and Deuteronomy 19, all of which talk about how to handle somebody that premeditatedly murders for vicious reasons. What do you think the penalty is? Death. You can go read it. Death. This person is put to death. Period. No discussion. Death. If they have no... They even contrast that with if there's a situation where the person accidentally messes up and somebody loses their life, or it wasn't premeditated and somebody loses their life, then there's a city of refuge. We talked about this a while back. There's a city of refuge they can go to. But if it's premeditated, if there's no conscience in this person whatsoever, you put them to death. That's what he says. Now, look at verse 27 in Hebrews 10. It says, there, there's no, remember, there's no sacrifice left because Jesus is it. And he says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, adversaries means enemy. And I want to tell you something, and I don't want to tear you up, but maybe I do. Last week, I told you all that we're enemies of God. We are God's enemies. And that Jesus Christ alone has made peace with God on our behalf. So this may be you. We're not talking about Satan here. This may be you. Zephaniah 1 talks about it. I won't go into it. Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That means that. Okay, this guy committed malicious murder, this woman committed malicious murder, and I have three people that can testify, or two people, two or three people that can prove that he did it. Look at this, verse 29. Now wrap your brain around this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son? Worse? What's the punishment for uh, death? Death is the punishment. He's saying how much worse is going to be the... What's worse than death? Eternity. Eternity. Do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot? That means you have complete contempt for it. You treat it as filth or dung that you step in. The Son of God. Son, witness number one. God, witness number two. And has profaned, or, or literally it means you've considered it ordinary, or common, or little value. It doesn't really mean much. The blood of the covenant by which he, Christ, was sanctified or set apart. doesn't mean made holy. He was already holy. It just means set apart. And has outraged the spirit, witness number three, of grace. Three witnesses. Doesn't need anything else. Three witnesses. You remember what? The people said to Pilate when he came out and he washed his hands and, you know, I wash my hands of this man's blood. He's innocent. What did the people say? His blood be on us, on our children crucified. In Matthew 27. Jude, and we were talking about it before. You don't have to go there, but Jude 3, 3 says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once for all was delivered to the saints. And he goes on to say, people have crept in and told you lies. It was done one time for all, period. So have assurance and confidence 
unlike the ones that we've been talking about, this little section we just talked about. Why? How can you have that assurance? Why should you have that assurance? Look at, let's finish it out. Verse 30. For we know him. That's how you have assurance. Do you know him? Listen, do you know him? If you don't know him, you can't hope to have that. If you do know him, you should have that. He said, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. You know this. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living, living, there it is again, living God. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. Go back and listen to the podcast if you need to go deeper on that. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed, that means put on stage like a spectacle. That means being eaten by lions to show off to the crowd. Publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prisons. This phrase right here kills me. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully? Somebody takes what you got and you're joyful about it. Why? How can you possibly be joyful about it? Look, since you knew that you yourselves had, had, H-A-D, past tense, possess. You had a better possession. Or even the word can be existence. And... An abiding one. Abiding means it will remain in place and it will continue to exist. You have a you had a possession that will continue to exist. Who cares what they take? Who cares what they let them take it? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Whose fault is it if you are struggling with this? It is your own fault. Do not Throw away your confidence because it has a great reward for you have need of endurance. Don't throw it away because you're going to have to endure some junk and you're going to need this. You're going to need this when you and, and this. This ain't got nothing to do with my work sucks. OK, you understand what I'm saying? He says so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised on the day. For yet a little while, this is quoting Isaiah 26 and probably Habakkuk too. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Listen, four points and we're done. You cannot lose it because you're not able. He's able, number one. Cannot lose it. You are not able to keep it. He is able to keep it. Be encouraging. Number two, be encouraging and loving. Look, nobody wants to hear the person who complains all the time. I'm telling you right now, maybe I'm just enlightening you. If you're a complainer, nobody wants to hear you. Do you feel people running away from you a lot? Why won't people just listen to me? Probably because you complain all the time. Be encouraging and loving. No one wants to hear somebody complains. Be consistent with the family and the body. We need you. You need us. And then finally, endure with confidence and assurance. Confidence and assurance. Cool? All right, let me pray and let's get out of here. God, you are.